So this first day of practice can seem kind of long, didn't it? Doesn't matter how many retreats you've done, when we arrive on retreat from the busyness of our lives and come into this container that has so much structure and intention to it, it's a challenge for us. It's a challenge for the body, getting used to doing this formal sitting and walking practice, which is why it's lovely to have qigong to hopefully balance some of that energy. It's certainly a challenge for our minds that are so used to running at full tilt. And here we're told to slow down and invite quietness or simplicity and just figuring out the schedule. You know, what am I meant to do and when and what's happening now? And everyone else seems to know what they're doing, but I don't quite seem to have gotten the message. So just that sense of struggle that can be here on the first day. Perhaps it wasn't for you. Perhaps you floated through this day with ease and no pain and no busy chattering mind, but I suspect that a lot of you did have some challenges today, even if it was just with some physical difficulty or tiredness or restlessness. And I don't know about you, but pretty much on the first or second day of any retreat that I've done, at some point I have the, the thought, why did I think this was a good idea? You know, What was I thinking was going to happen here? Because it can be challenging. Again, to take this kind of very different direction in how we fill our day um, from our lives to being on retreat. And we call this a meta retreat, a loving kindness retreat. But I really think we should, I don't know what, this wouldn't sell too well, I don't think, call it an everything retreat. Because hopefully, yes, you'll experience some meta, some loving kindness but you'll also experience the whole range of emotions, of sadness and anger and frustration and tiredness and resistance and worry and fear and joy and love. It's everything, right? As soon as we start exploring this landscape of the heart, all of the richness that's there, all of the challenge that's there will start to reveal itself because we've got more time to pay attention. And that's how the training begins, even if it seems a little chaotic or unwieldy or not what you thought should be happening. This is the practice. This really getting to be with and open to and explore the full range of the human experience. This is what we're doing here. So it's an everything retreat, not just a meta retreat. But this training especially or specifically in metta, happens through this paying attention, through this rich landscape, and not rejecting or denying or judging any of it, but inviting presence. Can I hold this with kindness? This too, this too. And that over and over again is what will allow us to develop the full potential, the full capacity, these beautiful qualities of the heart that we're not creating. We're allowing them to reveal themselves. We're allowing them to strengthen and and become more available for us. These qualities of warmth and kindness, friendliness, acceptance. So it's a radical thing that we're doing here. Instead of Again, so much of what our culture tells us, which is to get more and be more and do more, we're actually letting go. We're simplifying. And we're 
turning the attention to what we're feeling and sensing and knowing in this very immediate way. This heart, this mind, this body. How is it? Right now, again and again, kind of asking that question. Right now, how is it? So instead of the distraction and the busyness and the stress and the fracturing that Temple talked about, where we just feel so conflicted and divided and pulled in different directions, because we can feel so bombarded by the world, right? By all of the things we should or need to do, all of the things we should or need to take care of, all of the pushes and pulls, all of the agendas and deadlines and projects that we might have in our lives, the petitions to sign and the demonstrations to go to. It's just endless, right, of what's needed out there in our immediate field of our own lives and people we know and care about, but certainly in the greater world, so much need, so many demands. Here, it's much more about letting go. Yes, that will all still there. I don't think the world will change in the 10 days that you are here. But while we're here, can we simplify? Can we keep coming back to that intention to be kind? And it sounds so simple, yet it's actually really transformative and often very challenging to do to cultivate kindness to everything and everyone, to our inner experience and our outer experience. This is what we'll be doing over these days together. So this opening and inclusivity to, with wishes for well-being, inner and outer. I saw a cartoon a little while ago um, about a meditation class and you can tell that meditation's becoming a little bit more mainstream. There's more and more of these kinds of cartoons out there. But this is a meditation class, somewhat like this. Teacher sitting up the front, group of students practicing with their legs crossed and their eyes closed. And the teacher is intoning the instructions, which are, And now I want you to send out peaceful, loving thoughts to all sentient beings on the planet who have exactly the same political, economic, and religious beliefs that you do. So we won't be doing that here because our practice really is, can we open? Can we open to the other? Can we open to the other parts of ourselves that we've rejected? Can we open to where it's difficult in the inner and the outer field? This is the possibility of this practice. And so we'll be stretching, stretching in all directions. Um, For many of us, stretching to send that kind of love to ourselves. It's... Temple probably said this today, it's, it's, it's said to be where we should start this practice because it's the easiest. For, but for many of us, it's not at all easy to wish well to ourselves, but so essential. So sooner or later in your practice, you'll weave back to that. Or perhaps it will be your main practice over these days of retreat or even ongoing. Because starting with self-acceptance, self-kindness, self-love, is so important and everything can flower out of that. But we find our way into that. Again, we can't push or force this. But it's what we truly want, right? Even if we don't want to admit it to ourselves. I love this poem by Hafez, the great Sufi poet, who said, admit something. Everyone you see, you say to them, love me. 
Of course you do not say this out loud, otherwise someone would call the cops. Still, though, think about this. This great pull in us to connect. Why not become the one who lives with a full moon in each eye that is always saying with that sweet moon language what every other eye in the world is dying to hear? Love me. We want to be loved. We want to be seen and accepted and known. That journey starts by seeing, accepting, and knowing ourselves. And it's so much part of our practice here. We also practice with those who are near and dear to us, the easy category, again, that was introduced this afternoon. We'll go through the terrain of um, where it's difficult, again, in the inner and the outer field, relationally, and also the vastness of all of the unknown beings, human and non-human. There's a huge journey that we'll be on in these days of practice. And so this expansiveness, this deepening capacity to care is, is what we'll be training in this week. Even though there's so much um, news and bad news and, and heartbreaking news that can come to us through the internet these days, it's also a vehicle for stories of great inspiration, right? And in, t- in the non-human realm, so many stories of people rescuing animals, you know, rescuing whales or turtles that have been tangled in fish nets or ducklings stranded in a drain or a kitten up a tree and just the care that people take with these beings to, to make sure they're safe, often endangering themselves in, in the process. So there is so much goodness out there. And of course, the story that transfixed so many of us, it seemed like almost the whole world, was the story of these young Thai soccer players, this team of boys and their young coach, who I heard as a sort of in, rite of initiation, initiation passage, went deep into this cave in Thailand and then got stranded um, by a sudden monsoonal downpour. And so the rainwaters filled the cave and they got trapped there for 10 days before anyone knew that they were there or what, what to, how to find them. Just an amazing story to think of those boys and their young coach there in the darkness, without food, without real water. There was water there, but it was very muddy, um, not knowing. What was amazing about that story was just the outpouring of concern and people coming to help in that uh, rescue effort. Um, And luckily, you probably know they were rescued. But one of the interesting um, pieces about their time there, you know, that's just, just to think of 10, I think they were aged 10 to 16 or something, very young, and their coach was only about 25. When they were first discovered, well, this is the story I read online. When the 12 Thai boys who were trapped in a cave and, cave and were rescued were first discovered by British divers a week ago, they were reportedly meditating. Look at how calm they were, sitting there waiting. No one was crying or anything. It was astonishing, the mother of one of the boys told the AP, referring to a widely shared video of the moment the boys were found. And it is amazing. You'd think they'd be jumping up and screaming. or And they just sort of said, thank you, thank you. 
Um, turns out that their coach, Ekapol Chantawong, who led them on a hike into the cave when it flooded, trained in meditation as a Buddhist monk for a decade before becoming a soccer coach. According to multiple news sources, he taught the boys to meditate in the cave to keep them calm and preserve their energy through their two-week ordeal. He could meditate up to an hour, Ekapol's aunt, Tam Chantawong, told the AP. It definitely helped him and probably helped the boys to stay calm. So this mon- young man, Ekapol, 25, went to live in a monastery at age 12 after he was orphaned. He trained to be a monk for 10 years, in, but left to take care of a sick grandmother. He was then hired to be the assistant coach of the team known as the Wild Boars. And so there's a cartoon that circulated in Thailand and elsewhere of this young man meditating with 12 little cartoon images of these wild boars seated in his lap, and he's taking care of them. So whatever you might think about you know, his recklessness in taking the boys there, it was apparently, as I said, a rite of passage that they, that group had done in the past. He really took care of them. And the big thing that helped was the steadiness of his heart and mind in shepherding those young boys through that ordeal. And so he taught them to meditate in that time, in the darkness, in the cave, and actually for 10 days. We're in the sunshine with three good meals, Um, and a lot of support, and we know we can leave at any time or at the end of the retreat. So, but just to get a sense of the, the presence, the steadiness that was developed through those young boys and their coach. And I just felt the outpouring of concern, certainly all the news stories, but I would meet people and they'd say, did you hear they found the boys? And then the next person, did you hear someone, a first few got rescued? And then the next person, oh, they've got them all out. There was just this sense of caring. That's meta. We don't know those boys. We'll never meet them, probably. But the caring that was there because because we heard about their story and, and we felt that sense of connection. That's the heart of metta, the essence of metta, that kind of caring. But I like to keep metta really simple. We can have some idea that it should be this, you know, overpowering sense of love and we're going to rush off and rescue people or, you know, some glowing orb of light in our heart that radiates over the rest of the world. It doesn't, it can be that way. There's a possibility that it could be that way, but that's not the essence of it. I, as I said, keep it really simple. What I said before, kindness, acceptance, goodwill, friendliness or benevolence. If we create too high a bar for what metta is or what we should feel, we'll just be discouraged because there's no way we can sustain that kind of ecstasy or um, strength of emotion. But this um, very simple but profound act of caring, kindness, that we can keep coming back to. I love this teaching from Ajahn Samedo. He's an American man who uh, became a a monk uh, and is still ordained. He's been a monk for over 40 years. He says, metta is often translated as love. This word has many meanings for us. We usually connect it with liking. I love pizza means I like to eat it, not I have metta for it. With metta, you can love 
but you don't have to like. Metta includes the opposite of liking, not liking. Liking depends on circumstances or mood. Metta doesn't. When metta is idealistic, it doesn't work. I should love my mother. Or we can send it to all beings but can't feel it for the people we know because we feel we always have to like them, and sometimes we don't. This kind of metta can't include difficulties. When a child is misbehaving, the conditions for liking aren't there, but unconditional love still can be. Liking requires certain conditions. Metta doesn't. We should use our ideals like guiding stars be able to ignore and to be able to acknowledge current realities may not be ideal. So it's just giving us permission. Everything doesn't have to be perfect. We don't always have to be loving in that idealistic way that we can imagine. But we can keep coming back to the caring. We can keep coming back to this friendliness or well-wishing. This is our practice here. And so, as we come on retreat, yes, you know, there's a way we step out of the busyness of our lives and all of our responsibilities into the silence and the solitude and a lot of the renunciation that we take up here. Even as comfortable as our situation basically is, there's still a lot of renunciation of your familiar bed and possessions and the food that you normally eat with these precepts that we take of taking what's given. And so we leave a lot of the world behind. We leave all our friends and family. Hopefully we leave our work and our emails. We're hoping, we're asking. But of course, it doesn't all stop at the gate, right? We bring the world with us through our memories and our projections and our plans and our feelings and our emotions. So it's all here for us to explore. In the silence, in this um, practice realm that we create where through the not speaking, we actually have time to attend, time to take care in a way we can't if we're busy and conversation and, and filling up time with watching movies or reading or whatever else we might do. We're in this essential solitude where our practice is, as I've said, just to take care of this heart and mind to understand it, potentially to heal or transform it, but really, I think, to strengthen it, to strengthen its capacity to be present, capacity to, f- be, to feel, really strengthening its resilience so it can be more responsive. It doesn't have to be brittle or hard or soft or overwhelmed. It's actually got a strength to it, but it's very relational, very attuned to what's happening and where we are. So this strengthening and resiliency of the heart is so important because it's so easy to be overwhelmed by all the negativity in the world that we read about, that we might experience in our own lives, in our families, in our communities. I mean, there is so much hatred and prejudice and racism and intolerance, injustice out there. But as we start to attune more closely to our own hearts and minds, we start to intuit how much, so much of that is coming from others' fears 
or self-centeredness or lack of self-understanding, the othering that happens so regularly in the world. Because any time we create a sense of self, which we do again and again, the story of I, me, and mine, inevitably we create the other that's outside, that's different, that's separate. And then everything that comes along with that, the judging and the comparing, the good and the bad, the right and the wrong, the same, better or different. And really, in our Buddhist teachings, we see how much distortion happens through that, that we don't see clearly. Our perceptions are clouded. And so the way we're responding to the world isn't based on the Dhamma, on the truth, on reality. It's through our distorted perceptions. And so here our practice really is, can we see more clearly? Right here and right now. And as we understand, again, this heart and mind more intimately, more clearly, with more of a groundedness, we can then attune or open to others with that similar kind of understanding. And so it just deepens the possibility for connection and understanding. A lot of this process happens through what we call purification. And you might get a sense just from that word that this is not a simple, easy, or painless process. As we purify, what happens when we purify our hearts and minds is we have to be willing to sit with, to be with, to open to, to explore where it's difficult. Can I open to this too? Can I hold this wound or this grief or this memory with at first just the mindfulness, here it is, here it is, here's the impact, but ultimately can I hold it with kindness? As we do that again and again, as we bring this gentle, non-judging awareness to all of our experience, the painful thoughts, the difficult memories, the heartache, something begins to happen. Something that you really can't put words to, this transformation. After one retreat, a meditator said, one retreat is worth a year of therapy. And it's not that we come here to do therapy in the sense of figuring things out, but something happens, can happen on a a deep um, process level that is really healing and really transformative. And I think on a meta retreat, it might be two years of therapy. No guarantees here, but just to give you a sense of what we've all experienced is the power of this practice to reveal the truth of ourselves to ourselves. So, And in that knowing, there's more connection and understanding and acceptance and harmony. We're more in alignment with ourselves. And so here at Spirit Rock, we create these supportive conditions for that process to unfold. Pep's getting a sense if this practice is new for you. This is not going to be like a spa retreat. This is not just floating downstream in your terry cloth robe with your slippers, you know, when's the massage, when's the yoga class. This is hard work to actually keep showing up to keep paying attention, especially when it's difficult. So Spirit Rock is created to help you do that. The buildings and their spaciousness and simplicity, the land, we didn't obviously create the land, but the, 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 it's, we know that it supports 
our practice, the, the spaciousness and the, 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 the beauty and, and the simplicity, the nature, the animals that are here. And all of us practicing together. Imagine if you showed up and there was just you and the six of us. That, seven of us, actually. That would be a bit weird, wouldn't it? That we were watching what you're doing. Sid, is she walking now? No, she's not walking now. We go and have an interview with her. No, there's all of us here and we feel the richness. Sometimes there's challenge in that. We knock into each other and, you know, through one, one way or another, we can, uh, it cannot be always easy. But the, the resiliency of the community really does support us. There's the practice meetings that will begin with you tomorrow, the managers and the cooks who are the sort of front lines of really offering direct nourishment, sustenance, but so much support. And then all the background staff, you don't usually see them, but they're all here working to support your retreat. And of course, us as teachers offering teachings and guidance and meetings. So it's all here to support this deep process. So I, I trust you, we talked last night about the refuges. All of that I've just spoke about can also be a support, a refuge. We often talk about, you know, you, the, you finished the, being in a walking period and the bell rings and you're like, oh no not a, another sitting, another something. But you see everyone else filing in and the energy just draws you in. And the same when you're sitting here, you might be jumping out of your skin, but you see others sitting quietly and somehow you find the capacity to keep staying present. And so all of this is here for us, for all of us. And so we ta- start to tune in It's not that anything has changed, but as we tune in, we see metta and kindness is actually all around us. There are countless acts of kindness in the world, in our communities, every day. They don't make the news so often though, right? They news reports on the drama and the conflict and the challenges. As I said, there are places now where you get to see more of that kind of news, but this is one you may have heard recently, this really touched me. Um, Though it was on in a few news places, I think there was even videos made. And this is a story of Nora and Mr. Dan. Tara Wood of Augustus, Georgia, was with two of her kids on a routine trip to the grocery store. It was Nora, her four-year-old's birthday. That's when they ran across Dan Peterson, known as Mr. Dan. As Mr. Dan walked by, she, Nora, smiled and waved. Hi, old person. It's my birthday. He stopped in his track, smiled and said, Well, hello, little lady. How old are you today? They chatted for a couple of minutes, and we, this is the mother speaking, went our separate ways. But a few minutes later, Nora decided she really wanted a picture with Mr. Dan, so Wood tracked him down. This is Mr. Dan. I just walked away, and then I was coming up the bread aisle. And I said, okay, this is almost my last aisle before I get out of here. And then here is this little girl again. And so they posed together and then they hugged each other like they were long lost friends, the mother said. They thanked him for his time. He teared up and said, no, thank you. This has been the best day I've had in a long time. You've made me so happy, Miss Nora. Mr. Dan described Nora on that day as a light that just lit me up. 
Woods, the mother, was so touched by the exchange that she went home and posted the photos on Facebook. Not only did she receive thousands of instant reactions, that's also when something really special happened. A friend of Mr. Dan's reached out to Wood to let let them know that his wife had just died and she hadn't seen him this happy in a long time. She knew Mr. Dan and his late wife, Mary. This is the person, uh, mother saying, she was the key to getting us in touch. So I got this phone call. This is Mr. Dan it's, uh, speaking. Is this the Dan that talked to the little girl in the grocery store? And I said, are you talking about Nora? And so the mother decided they should probably pay him a visit and Mr. Dan agreed. They came by the house, and sure enough, she grabbed me and hugged me like there was no tomorrow, said Mr. Dan. Nora brought him a a framed picture of the two of them in the grocery store, pictures she colored, he put them on his fridge, and a bag full of pastries and butterfingers. After going over to visit him, Wood, the mother, says, Nora asked to visit Mr. Dan after school every single day. While they don't go by every day, they make it a point to call him at least once a week, and they definitely went over to help him celebrate his 82nd birthday. Nora also worries about Mr. Dan and doesn't want him to be alone. Nora has been worried about Mr. Dan being alone. This is a mother. She wanted to know if we could buy him a dog, because dogs make everything better. While they didn't get Mr. Dan an actual dog, Nora made sure to hand-deliver a stuffed puppy. While her mother said Nora spends a lot of time thinking about Mr. Dan, he said it's meant the world to him as well. Mr. Dan said that when he had run into Nora at the grocery store, he'd been having a really tough time. It was one of those days when I'm on my own little private pity party, said Mr. Dan, and I'm feeling sorry for myself and doubting my beliefs, and it obviously changed my opinion that day and lifted my spirits to heights I hadn't known for a long time. Mr. Dan made sure to let the mother know. He said he hadn't had an uninterrupted night of sleep for the past several months, she said. Sadness and anxiety had made his mind wander at night, but since meeting Nora, he has slept soundly every single night. He says she healed him. Wood said she wasn't sure why Nora chose to call out Mr. Dan. She has grandfathers, but seems to think of Mr. Dan as a friend. Wood is sure it was simply meant to be. I can only assume there were some divine intervention or stars aligning, um, bec- or she was nudged by the universe. I know we're all better for it, though, said Wood, the mother. Wood will keep updating the world on this dynamic duo. I love this bit. Mostly, she just cares about his well-being and his heart. She wants him to be happy. That's the heart of Metta. She cares, and she wants him to be happy. I guess that's what friends are supposed to do. Mr. Dan summed up his new friend well. If I didn't have anything else to do the rest of my life, he said, I have her to love. So just a sweet story of two beings meeting as total strangers and becoming love objects to each other, a four-year-old and an 82-year-old. This is the capacity of the heart when it's open. And even the heart that's wounded, like Mr. Dan, when it meets that kind of love, it heals, it transforms. And so it's powerful that this is possible for all of us. And it takes that kind of opening to be available 
if we're closed and hidden and frightened, not so easy for it to come in. Just again, the sea of kindness that, that we live in. We've talked about this, the people that are perhaps supporting you to be here. Friends or family or colleagues taking care of things for you. Um, someone at the doctors who just treated you with great kindness. Someone in a store who helped you with what you needed. Again, there's many stories of the opposite, but there's also those stories of kindness, of care. The Dalai Lama says, choose kindness whenever possible. But then he adds the kicker, and it's always possible. It's always possible. Doesn't mean we can, but that it's possible. How does that happen? When we train the heart in this way where this intention to kindness is reaffirmed and clarified over and over again. We can't just do it once. There's no kind of on switch and then we're good to go. And that's why the training that we'll do in this retreat is so powerful over and over again so that metta kindness becomes our default setting, not something we have to stretch for or only happens in the right conditions but just our basic relationship to the world. Can there be kindness or friendliness or goodwill? And we start to discover that it's actually more available than we might have thought, that this is the natural state of the heart. When it's uncontracted, the contraction is the uh, altered state. The natural state is the softness, is the openness, is the responsiveness. And so it's out of that empathy, that feeling with, just as Nora did with Mr. Dan, she wants him to be happy. Her love is wanting him to be happy. That's what compassion means. It means to feel with, literally, compassion, to feel with. And so metta's essence is a kind of empathy where we know that others want to be happy just like us. And the more we can rest and know our wish for happiness, then we can tune into and meet and respond to and cultivate others' wish to be happy. And so this training supports that, even when things are difficult. And again, it doesn't mean we're perfect or always loving, but that there's some fundamental response that has caring in it that that's where we come back to again and again and again, even when things are difficult. These powerful words from Martin Luther King, we must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. Forgiveness is not an occasional act, it is a permanent attitude. Darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. And I don't know if you'd heard the teachings of the Buddha, but 2,600 years ago, the Buddha said something like, anger is never healed by anger, but, but no, anger can never drive out anger, but by love alone is healed. A very similar sentiment to what Martin Luther King Jr. expressed. So the Buddha taught this practice of metta, of loving kindness, if it's new to you, we introduced it this afternoon, introduced the phrases that we're encouraged to 
um, settle on, to, to have some phrases that work for us, that express these wishes of caring, and then gently repeat them over and over and over and over and over again, basically all the time. And so again, if this is new to you, your first question might be, why? You know, because it can be challenging to, to remember them, to say them, to, to not be bored or frustrated or distracted, but to keep coming back. So why saying these phrases? Well, our best answer to that is because it works. We've all done this practice, extensive periods of time, and we know there's something powerful in this clarifying the intention through the um, forming of the words, even as we're doing it silently in our minds and our hearts. The secret is, and I almost hate to use this word, but it's a form of brainwashing, right? It's actually filling your mind up, instead of its usual drivel and, and obsessions, with these phrases of kindness. It's like a literal replacing. If you're saying the phrases of metta, you're not self-obsessing, you're not worrying, you're not planning. You're creating this intention to be kind. And so it's a reprogramming of the brain, as I said, to switch the dial so the default setting are these, are these kinds of phrases or these kinds of intentions. So even if you're not feeling some grand expression of metta, just the willingness to say the phrases is powerful. As my dear friend and colleague, Carol Wilson, who's always got very good sharp one-liners, she says, fake meta is better than real aversion any day. So we have a lot, you know, fake it till you make it. You just keep saying it, even if you're not feeling it. The feeling will come. Or it'll come in waves. It won't be there all the time. But we can keep the intention up to saying the phrases. So this practice was developed by the Buddha 2,600 years ago out of teachings that he gave that came down to us in what we know as the Pali Canon, this collection of his teachings. And I'll talk in a moment about the Metta Sutta that's the main reference for us that we'll be chanting in the evenings here. And there's another teaching, um, traditional teaching that's given. That's, uh, so the Metta Sutta is on the backside of the Refuges and Precepts chant you were given. And this other chant, this pervading with the divine abidings was on the other side of the handout you were given with the meta phrases. We'll do both of those chants. They're both beautiful ways. They're pointing to beautiful ways to practice. Uh, in the meta phrase, it's about repeating these phrases and keeping that going. In the um, suffusion with the divine abiding, it's really in resting in these qualities of the heart, these um, brahma-viharas, we call them, um, these divine abidings, and just letting that radiate. So we'll offer that as an alternative. If the words get too much, you can just rest in this feeling of metta. Or the other Brahma-viharas, divine abidings, Sharon like Salzberg likes to call them best home, um, of compassion, um, karuna or compassion, mudita or sympathetic or empathetic joy or just joy, and then upeka or equanimity. And again, if you're new to Spirit Rock, you'll recognize them as the name of our building. So for this week, you are living in a divine abode um, of metta or karuna or mudita or upeka. And sometimes they're very appropriate which building you got put into. 
Um, so we'll teach all of these in the coming days because they're great complements and different facets of metta. We do metta as the foundational practice because it's, it's this simple sense of kindness, but metta when it meets suffering turns to compassion. Metta when it um, experiences joy in oneself or others becomes mudita or joy. And then equanimity, upeka, needs to be there as this balancing, this, this ability to stay present for all of these different facets. And we'll also teach complementary practices of forgiveness and gratitude because they also really support this deepening of the heart. So as I said, these practices were taught by the Buddha and specifically the text that we use that guides how we do the practice um, is that sutta that's on your sheet, the Metta Sutta. And it's said that the origin of these practices were that during the time of the Buddha, uh, they would have a practice period called the rains retreat, where all of the monks and nuns would settle down in one area so they wouldn't be going out and about too much because it's when all the farmers were planting their fields and so they wouldn't trample on the newly planted crops or seedlings. And so this group of monks were sent to a certain forest to do this rains retreat. When they arrived there, um, it is said that there were tree spirits living in the forest. At the time of the Buddha, there's a whole cosmology of spirits and devas and brahmas that were beings from other realms that lived here, close by or far away that the Buddha and others regularly had interactions with. Do you believe that or not? It's what's in the text. So it's said in this forest, these tree spirits lived there. And at first, they didn't mind the monks being there. Um, they were quiet and meditating, but then they realized they weren't going away. They were planning to stay for an extended period, and they didn't like that for some reason. So it said they created loud noises and visions and smells to drive the monks away, and they were successful. The monks couldn't meditate. They were afraid. They were, didn't know what was going on, so they picked up and went, ran back to the Buddha and said, we can't meditate in that forest. It's full of scary tree spirits. Well, the Buddha looked over the realm with his omniscient eye, it said, and determined that that forest was the best place for these monks to practice. So he said, go back there, but do this practice of metta that I'll teach you, and then you'll be safe. So he taught them the metta practice. They went back to the forest, and they started saying to the street tree spirits, may you be happy, may you be safe, may you be well. And the tree spirits really liked that. And so it said that they then supported the monks and, of course, liked them being there. And as these stories always end, all of the monks, I think, became enlightened in that forest. So that was supposedly the beginning of this um, sutta. And you have the text in front of you, if you want to look at it, where it starts off, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. And this is a very traditional way to begin the practice. We reflect on the goodness of ourselves and others as a doorway into this well-wishing. Now, this can often be difficult for us. It seems like it might be prideful or we, we're so judgmental or critical that we don't see any good. But this is actually a very powerful practice. And we can develop this capacity. We'll talk more about that. And the path of peace. This is what we're on this path of actually bringing more peace into the world, more kindness, instead of contention and division. This is what we're wanting to do. Let them be able and upright, 
straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Doesn't that sound like someone it'd be easy to get to know or to be around? These are the qualities we cultivate very much here on, on retreat where we're unburdened with duties apart from your work meditation. And we're living simply with what we brought and what's offered. So we're practicing this. And then it goes just to describe the practice. Wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. Even as a mother and it goes on, you'll see it in the text, I'm abbreviating some, even as her mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world. So this sense of caring to beings near and far, known and unknown, human and non-human, this is the practice that we'll be doing. Whether standard, standing or walking, seated or lying down, Free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is the challenge, right? To keep going. And again, we build on this. We don't expect that you can do this straight away. It takes time. It's like a muscle, a meta-muscle that we build. But over time, that's the intention. That this intention to well-wishing keeps getting deepened, keeps getting clarified, no matter what you're doing, in your walking, in your sitting, in your room, while you're showering. May all beings be at ease. This practice was um, further refined in later, uh, in the years following the, the life of the Buddha and, and codified in a, in a very um, um, large and intricate book called the Vasudhimaga, The Path of Purification. Uh, Acharya Buddhaghosa compiled it in the 5th century where he took all the different practices that people were doing and gave all of the instructions. So that's where we really see the, the um, languaging of these phrases that we use and the categories of beings, these universal wishes for safety and happiness and health and well-being and the categories of beings that we've talked about of self and benefactor and friend and neutral and difficult and all beings. And so this is what we develop our practice out of. And then it moves to this, or there's this shift that happens at the end of the sutta. So this is a teaching from the Buddha talking about this practice. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. So it's really talking about the possibility of this practice, metta loving kindness, actually being liberating. Being freed from all sense desires is the third stage of awakening in the Buddhist um, teachings of, of liberation. And so it's a shift where it's talking about you and me relating to each other to this almost transcendent possibility. But whatever journey we take in that direction, what I do know is we change the world we live in, not by changing what's out there, but as we transform our own hearts and minds, we transform how we relate to ourselves and how we relate to others and therefore those relationships and that world we create through those relationships, whether it's to individuals or the world in, in general, 
the world changes. Not that, you know, our phrases, our wishes make it change, but through our transformation. So literally, when you leave this retreat, you will not be reborn into the same world you left because you'll be different. And especially, you'll have cultivated this capacity to metta or kindness. And the world looks different when that is our foundational response. So it's an amazing, powerful practice. And it's the inner transformation of our own hearts and minds, not some magical thing that happens where we change others or the world. But through that inner change, the others in the world actually do get changed. Metta is also a concentration practice. Through the steadiness of the intention and really the phrases, but we can also include um, the other aspects of the practice, the mind actually gets unified. And when I say concentration, it's a translation of a Pali word that's samadhi. You may have heard that term used before. Concentration isn't a great translation. It's the one we usually use, but when we hear it in English, we, we can get a kind of fixity or a narrowness of attention. And samadhi doesn't mean that. Samadhi means unification of mind or unification of mind and body, steadiness of, of mind, or non-distractedness of mind. And so they're the qualities that we develop. And what happens is the mind gets unified around this intention towards metta. And it can be very powerful because when the metta feeling and the steadiness of the concentration come together, it actually is sort of a two-for-one. They, they, they magnify each other. So it can be very powerful and deepen into deep states of concentration. We'll talk more about this later in the retreat. So even if you don't get deeply concentrated, you'll get more concentrated than you were if you maintain this continuity of practice as best you can. And again, we know that it, it takes time to develop. You, you, you know, there's still struggles and challenges, but that's the direction where we're really kind of bringing the fragmentation, the discursiveness, and bringing it all together with this intention, this steadiness, this repetition of the phrases going over and over again. And so even as I say that, I don't want to get or give the sense that this requires a huge amount of effort. There's a lot of striving. Just being here in the simplicity of the retreat will allow that, support that to happen. As we reduce the distractions, as we reduce the busyness, just being here and being supported in the ways I've talked about. But if we add to that, the intention and the coming back and the beginning again and, and the underlying attitude of kindness, it really can deepen and deepen in powerful and unpredictable and almost amazing ways. And it's never a straight or a linear journey. We'll all go through ups and downs and challenges and places and times when we want to give up or we feel confused or lost or full of doubt. But if we keep coming back, keep returning to this intention, I know the transformative possibilities, having practiced myself in this way and led many of these retreats with hundreds, now hundreds and hundreds of people. 
it's powerful. And this is quite an amazing journey that we've all embarked on together. I love this um, teaching from Maya Angelou, the great poet, wise woman, about love. She says, love recognizes no barriers. It jumps hurdles, leaps fences, penetrates to arrive at its destination full of hope. Just that sense of commitment. Yes, love. And again, not in a grandiose sense, but this sense I've been talking about that we can develop this heart of kindness. We can develop a heart that's more resilient, more connected, more open, more caring, beginning right here and also radiating to people here on the retreat, those we know and care about, but then in this more and more expansive way. At the end of one meta retreat we taught here, a student wrote a note that said, instead of us all applying for Medicare, we need to apply for Metacare, M-E-T-T-A, and we're practicing for universal coverage of kindness, pervading all quarters without discrimination or pre-existing conditions. Metta is an optimistic practice. People can be happy. And I think it's true, it is an optimistic practice. I can be happy. You can be happy. We can be happy. This is possible. And again, I don't mean in some idealistic, rainbow-filled, always way, but just this basic attitude. And we're all here, as I said, because we know this practice works. If you don't know that yet, or you have your doubts, borrow our faith. We have lots. And that's what we'll be talking with you about in our practice meetings and encouraging you as you go through these days. But to know that this is possible for for me, for you, for all of us, to deepen in kindness, to deepen in caring, and to actually have that become the default mode, the place that's accessible, that we come back to. It's like the Roomba, you know, comes, does all its work and then it comes back to that docking station and gets all recharged up, ready to go. I don't have one, but it sounds cool. Cleaning, cleaning, cleaning the heart so that we can go back out into the world a little bit more kind, a little bit more present, a little bit more at home in ourselves. So at the end of these offerings, we just like to let the words settle into silence before we get up and move. So just take a moment. If you want to move your posture, you don't need to. It's just to let things settle a little before we go out and do some walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.